Hello, and my goodness, do I have a guest for you today. Credentials are very impressive. We're going to be talking with Emily Hosokawa, and she's currently an acute care speech pathologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. She graduated from Purdue University with her master's degree in 2018 and completed a clinical fellowship specializing in swallowing and swallowing disorders at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She joined the VUMC team in July 2020, and her interests are dysphagia in medically complex patients and clinical dysphagia research. I know I am like explaining the like who you guys, some of you want to be as you move into your careers. And Emily shows that it's possible. Her outside interests are exploring Nashville, her rescue puppy Grayson, reading and sewing. So I'm so excited for our guest today. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. and welcome to the Missing Link for the SLPs podcast. I am so glad you are here. Today's episode is part of the Medical SLP series where we talk to some amazing speech paths who work in a variety of medical settings, all the way from intensive care through to home care and everything else in between and beyond. You're gonna hear some incredible medical SLP stories and lots of advice from these passionate medical SLPs. so many speech pathologists when they start graduate school they're like I want to be a medical SLP Mm -hmm. so I am super glad you came on so I read that you're in acute care um tell us a little bit about yourself sure so I am um my first year working uh full-time after my CF I just started um working in July I uh did my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Um, And then I went on to go to graduate school at Purdue. Um, And then I did a clinical fellowship in dysphagia back at University of Wisconsin again. And then um, now I'm working full-time at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And I've been here since July and loving it. Um, You might hear my dog snoring next to me too. So if your sound editor can take that out. But um, I'm just kind of loving getting my feet wet into um, working full-time and really just diving in. Excellent. So I did introduce Grayson because you put him in your notes. So tell us about Grayson. He's a rescue pup. <laughs> yes, a rescue pup. I got him um, last September. He's here. I know it's just for us, but that's him right there. Oh. Yeah. So he's my little buddy because I'm living here. Um, I kind of moved here sight unseen because I also moved in the middle of the pandemic, like right yeah. in the middle of it. So um, I moved here by myself and I was like, I need a dog. I think I'm at that point in my life now <laughs> where I need a little buddy. You snuggled right up beside you. So is it is it everything you thought it would be, your career? Um, yeah, in a lot of ways. I think um, I didn't always know that it was going to be when I was in graduate school. I think I had a really... Um, I wasn't really sure what I was going to go into, but I think the way it's turned out now and the way the opportunities I've had, it, it absolutely is, is what I've wanted. Excellent. So tell us why you became a speech pathologist. Let's go back to your story of why you're doing what you're doing. Um, well, I actually started in, um, psychology. I wanted to be a, like a research psychologist or, um, 
kind of go into that. And then I ended up by accident taking a, a what we called a ComDIS, Communication Sciences and Disorders. I ended up taking the intro class and then um, kind of just fell in love with that and then started some research labs, um, working in research labs at Madison uh, and getting into more of that like clinical side of, um, I was doing research with patients with traumatic brain injury. And I found that really interesting and just seeing how I could apply that more than, than just in the psych, um, world. So I decided to go into that. Um, and as an undergrad, I, I mean, um, maybe other people have different experiences, but I certainly didn't get any like dysphagia exposure or anything like that. So that part was still unknown to me until I went to graduate school um, and then when I started working with those patients, that's like where I was like, this is absolutely what I want. This is um, my passion. They had that opportunity for you in graduate school? Yeah. Um, in graduate school, we we had a um, great research lab that focused on, on dysphagia. Dr. Um, Malandraki works there and, and she runs a research lab and, and has some, um, a, like a clinical side of that too, that we got to rotate through as graduate students. What a good opportunity. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm really fortunate looking back on it because there were a lot of programs <clears throat> that I had considered that I don't think would have had that same opportunity. Yeah. So there's some words of advice right there for new grads looking at, cause I often get the question, how do I choose the program I want? Mm -hmm. And my answer has been choose the one that's going to offer you the opportunities to take your career where you want to go, where your interests are. Yeah. I think that's really smart. Um, I also just more on a practical note too. I think part of one of the bigger things too, for me was um, the cost of the program as well, which seems so silly, but then, you know, in hindsight, I think that that's been really freeing for me to go to a program where I didn't end up with a lot of student debt. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's allowed me to take opportunities that I'm not sure I would have had otherwise if I um, had been, you know, thinking <laughs> with like a big cloud of debt over my head. Right. Right, right. Well said. So you are acute care. Mm -hmm. Tell us what your setting is like. Who do you work with? What time does your day start? Well, I'm at um, kind of a, like the major um, teaching hospital here in Nashville. Um, I work um, full-time in the acute setting. I start my day, I usually go in about 8 a.m. and then um, leave bit around 4.30. Um, that's the goal. And I... Uh, see all sorts of patients in the acute care setting, but I, I do love my dysphagia folks. So that's what I see a lot of. And that's kind of the biggest chunk of our caseload. Um, so I do a lot of clinical swallow evaluations, um, video swallow studies, um, fees, and then um, a lot of uh, cognitive evaluations for maybe patients that have come in with traumatic brain injuries or strokes. Um and I work Monday through Friday and I kind of just get to do a little bit of everything in that setting. Do you ever have to work weekends? Um, no, we, we actually have a dedicated, uh, we have two dedicated weekend therapists. So, so one of our, uh, our employees flexes um, Sunday through Thursday and some, someone does Tuesday through Saturday. Um, we like holidays and things like that. Um, you might end up getting kind of moving around dates in a little bit like that. And, um, I do, we can cover, you know, if, if the therapists want a, a day off, we can certainly cover weekends, but it's not my norm. What does your productivity requirements look like? Um, I would say they're, they're very, um, reasonable. I have to be honest. I came 
from my clinical fellowship, we never had productivity requirements. So I had been working for a year. Um, just where did you, where'd you do your clinical fellow? Um, I was at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and so that was like a dedicated CF position. It's not like you do your CF and they hire you. So it's really a training position. So going into that, yeah, we didn't have the idea of productivity was very foreign to me. So I got here and, um, there's like a certain number of units you need to have, I guess, kind of, um, on average. And then I found that that was not an issue because like the, maybe one of the downsides of not having productivity is just that you work and work and work and work (laughs) until there's no more work. Um, so it hasn't been an issue at all. I think it's very generous and, and it, I, I honestly don't think about it most days. Excellent. Who else is, that's a foreign concept to me, not having productivity, <laughs> but that would be, gosh, that would be, that would be cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really wonderful. I mean, I, um, it was also kind of unique because it was, uh, just a dysphagia training position. Um, they kind of have a different setup there at university of Wisconsin where they have a dysphagia, um, acute care and outpatient team. And then they have the speech communication side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were like genuinely separate departments within um, the hospital. And so um, we we focused really just on the acute care dysphagia caseload. And so that was never really an issue with productivity. Um, you know, even though that requirement wasn't there, it never, it never really became an issue where there wasn't enough work. <laughs> you have my mind just turning on ideas. So in your acute care setting, how many patients do you see a day? Um, I think I probably average maybe on a on an average day, maybe like six up to eight, even 10 patients. It kind of just depends on what I'm doing for the day. If I'm doing um, a lot of clinical swallow evaluations, um, those tend to take a little bit less time. If I am doing a lot of cognitive evaluations, I find myself taking a lot more time with that just because um, I'm still, that's an area where I'm still learning a lot because I didn't do my fellowship with a lot of emphasis on that cognitive communication part. Mm-hmm. Um, and then days where we we do fees or videos, I would probably, I, I would say I see maybe between three and six video swallow studies on a single day and then maybe four to six fees on a single day. And, and we do it where we have a dedicated fees or video swallow clinician for the day. So you're not kind of alternating between that, like your, your uh, clinical bedsides and your, and your video swallows. You just have a person on. That's very linear thinking. Cause in my, um, out, when I cover acute care on, I keep one day of clinic and it's, we flip back and forth. And so you have to think, okay, where am I? Who am I? What did I see? What am I? And I think there are pros and cons to it. I like the idea. um, I liked the setup where I could see a patient in the morning. I could say, Mm -hmm. well, I'm going to go see you at 1 PM and I'm going to do a video swallow with you. And you could follow them throughout the day. Whereas Mm -hmm. in this setup, you know, if I see someone that needs a video swallow or fees, that clinician's going to do it. That fees clinician for the day is going to go see them, which is, I like the pro I like the efficiency of that model too, but I think you lose out a little bit on, on following that patient and having that knowledge of them. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your patients that come in, where are they in their medical journey? Um, so I, I see a lot of, um, ICU like critical care patients. Um, so a lot of them are, um, critically ill, sometimes like trach bent dependent, um, or, um, maybe their status post like a, a surgery or some kind of intervention. Um, they come from all over 
really all over kind of like our tri-state area. So we'll get a lot of patients from all over Tennessee that um, come to VUMC as like a higher level of care. Um, patients from Kentucky, from Alabama, um, we see a lot of those patients come in. And um, usually they're just getting started on, on kind of that acute recovery phase. So maybe they've made it now where they're extubated and, and the team feels like they're pretty stable. And, and the next question is, okay, what? how are we going to get back to eating and drinking or communicating? Um, so that's kind of where I usually find myself in that patient journey. Dealing with caregivers, do you have much involvement with them, with, with caregivers as well in this part of the journey? Yeah, um, it's been a little bit odd. I'm sure you know, too, with COVID, there's kind of, there's visitor restrictions that vary by, you know, hospital and state. So I think right now we, we have one visitor per patient. So um, that's actually, from my perspective, made it kind of nice because you get to know that one caregiver versus having a whole family of questions at the bedside. Um, And I think it's, it's um, gone well. Um, I think the part that I still have a lot to learn about in an area of growth really is that more like that palliative care kind of family involvement side of it. Um, So kind of learning how to have those discussions about um, feeding at end of life um, with caregivers. That's a skill I think I'm always working on. And that's probably the most challenging caregiver interaction that I have. I was just going to say, for those who don't know what palliative care is, would you like to describe it? Sure. So palliative care can be um, care that is focused more on um, comfort and and pain control. Um, Sometimes that can include hospice care too, which is more like end of life care. Um, So the patients that I see that usually come in on that kind of palliative, maybe even hospice side of care are usually patients with advanced like neurodegenerative diseases. So um, I've had recently had a patient with um, advanced Huntington's disease who went palliative, mm-hmm. um, a patient with advanced Parkinson's, um, ALS, all sorts of things like that. And so sometimes what I run into um, is families that uh, they really want to prolong their, their loved one's lives. And so it, it comes down to a conversation about, you know, usually feeding. Um, what are what are the benefits of trying to place like long-term feeding tubes and trying to educate the family and the team on, on what that means for the patient and, and guide them in their decision-making. Yeah, exactly. That's where your counseling skills come in. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, And it's hard sometimes too, I think as like a, a younger clinician, especially a young woman, you come into these situations and I'm not sure that you know, you necessarily have like the presence of <laughs> someone who's who's worked a little bit longer, maybe. Now, there's an interesting question. How do you, many of the listeners of this, of this podcast are in your situation where they walk into a room and you look so young <laughs> and sometimes inexperienced. How do you convey that confidence, that competency skill level that you need to portray to have those conversations? Um, I think it really does come down to um, having some experience. So if you genuinely were going into a situation where maybe you didn't feel like you knew the information or the literature, having someone else with you would be a good place to start. But if you feel like you are confident in in your clinical decision-making, for me, 
going there and sitting down and really just kind of being face-to-face and spending time with the family, um, I find that they're usually pretty receptive. Um, I think too, just speaking candidly a lot of times can kind of portray that you're, you're on the same page that you're coming in with your set of knowledge and you're trying to meet them where they're at. So, um, I think it really is using those counseling skills to show them that you are there to help and that you have the knowledge that maybe other team members don't have. And you want to give that knowledge to them to help them make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. Taking their perspective, speaking candidly, shorter sentences. So you can (laughs) say something they can process and then ask back. Yeah. And I really think spending time, which I know, and you asked about productivity, it's hard in the acute care setting, but um, those are the patients where I just, I, I genuinely just pull up a chair in the room. I don't stand and just act like I'm like trying to get out of the room <laughs> quickly. So I'll sit and, and say, okay, what are, what are your questions? You know, tell me what you're thinking. I do the same thing when I have completed a video swallow study and I'm not going to recommend that they continue oral intake. That's when I pull up the stool and I, you know, I switch the monitor, I turn it around and I pull that monitor down right beside me in the patient. And I say, look, this is what we've got. And I orient them to what they're seeing and and what's happening. That's really, that's, that's wonderful. I wish sometimes, I think the way we do our video swallows, it's, it's so quick. We have, we have like batches. And so it's harder to get that in as the the clinician doing the video swallows, but I try as best I can to just kind of, and, you know, transports coming in trying to take them back to the room. I'm like, give me five minutes, (laughs) give me five minutes and then I'll be all done. We'll wrap it up. But just, you know, mm -hmm, so that they don't go back upstairs. Well, I think I failed. Well, I'm not really sure. And, you know, and it's very confusing for them because that's the language that they hear from the team <laughs> and, and other. Um, well, members. even changing that language, you mm-hmm. know, really fail, quote, unquote. Yeah. Uh, no, we learn. We learn. <laughs> I, I know. And the thing is, you know, when I get done with the Fieser video, that's always the first question. Well, well, it's either did I pass or can I have some water? And I say, well, I, it's never pass fail. You, you worked so hard and you did everything I asked you to do. And here's what I saw. Mm-hmm. And so I like to start with that and then um, kind of go from there. I'm like, here's my perspective on why I think water is a good idea. or I think water is maybe not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agents love to be validated. They, they, it's their choice. It's their voice. Yeah. It's their chance to operate. There's their opportunity to voice what their wants and needs are. And then we educate and guide. It's it's difficult too sometimes in the in the acute setting in particular. I'm sure it's very it's very different ball game in the outpatient setting. But in the acute care setting, a lot of our patients don't have may not have um, capacity, or they may not be making their own decisions. Mm-hmm. And so it's difficult trying to educate mm-hmm. on that side. And then you know they're expressing one thing, but maybe it's a POA or a family member making decisions for them. And so it's difficult to have that conversation. Good point. Very good point. Anything else you can tell us about the acute care setting? Um, I, I mean, particularly, I think the, the number one thing I, and I, I haven't mentored any graduate students as a newer clinician, but just kind of seeing, um, being myself a newer clinician coming in, I think just the number one thing is being, being flexible <laughs> and, and being able to problem solve a little bit. So that's, a couple of the aspects of the job that I love the most about acute care. So every day is different and you might start out the day 
thinking you have one sort of schedule and then it completely changes and you just, you go with the flow. So I think having that, that flexible, um, thinking and just being able to, um, work with whatever the patients give you that day, that is a skill that's going to serve you really well in the acute care setting. Sounds like good advice. Tell me who your other team members are. Sure. So we have a um, pretty big team. We have um, uh, one outpatient therapist currently, and she does all of our like outpatient clinical swallows and works really um, closely with our head and neck cancer patients who are going through um, radiation uh, treatment and things like that. And then we have, um, I'm trying to think of how many team members we actually have on the acute care setting. We have um, at least five or six full-time acute care SLPs, and then um, two or three that are working part-time. And then we have a great PRN team as well that um, are here often. <laughs> um, and we actually have, a, we've had a few people out on maternity leave. So we've had those PRN staff come in um, more. So it's a, it's a pretty big group and we're all kind of crammed into a little office. So we get lots of FaceTime together. And um, I think that's my number one favorite thing about working at, at Vanderbilt now actually is a, that it's a wonderful supportive team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's, it's not always easy to come by. So I, I consider myself really lucky to have that. I worked at the University of Minnesota M Health downtown West Bank. Mm-hmm. And um, we hardly saw very much a setting like yours. Mm-hmm. You know, we walked in, got our schedules, feet on the ground, and then off we were, you know, going to the different floors to see our different patients and see who was ready. Um, so any strategies or tips for um, collaborating with a team team like where you work in an acute care setting where it is a larger team and you are so mobile and moving around during the day? Well, I think number one is that we share a physical space. That's really wonderful. So when everyone comes in in the morning, they're, you know, sitting down at their desk and they're pulling up their schedule and, you know, um, we're getting to see each other every morning like that. And then also having, um, knowing that maybe there's a PRN staff that's going to see my therapy patient that day, or that I'm referring someone for fees. I have to talk to all those clinicians and just make sure, you know, I would want to talk to them and make sure that they know kind of a little bit of backstory on this patient what my thoughts are. And so I end up doing a lot of reaching out and saying, Hey, so you're going to see Mr. Mr. Smith today. Here's my thought, you know, here's what I want you to do. Um, and then we also actually, um, Typically, we try and eat lunch together too, which is a nice kind of like midday check-in, um, see how the day is going. And so I think uh, actually here, it's, it's just a wonderful sense of um, team and community that I think is one of the biggest strengths and, and uh, really wonderful part of the, the uh, experience. Excellent. What words of advice do you have for the speech pathologist who wants to move into a setting like yours? Um, I don't know if I'm like the best person to give advice because I, I feel like I've gone through the, this kind of like very specific tract of like only having worked in acute care settings. But I imagine if I, let's say I had gone maybe into like the schools or something and then wanted to come back to acute care, I think probably the biggest thing would be, um, doing some of that self-education. So maybe like doing CEUs outside of um, your current field and then 
having someone that can be a mentor and advocate for you, I, I can only imagine how far that would go to just making some connections and saying, okay, this is what I want to do. Like, can you help me get there? And having someone, you know, working with you to get into that setting. Good advice. What has been a challenge for you working in that setting? I think a challenge for me is um, trying to always keep up with this kind of changing nebulous, like evidence-based practice that, you know, we all want. And so trying to always kind of incorporate that into my practice, which means that, you know, a lot of what I'm doing may be changing like year to year. Um, and then making sure that I'm advocating for my patients. Um, that's, that's one thing that I've really had to learn. And, and not that it's, um, a negative, but it's one of the challenges, I think, is really learning how to speak up on behalf of your patients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I totally have not thought of that one. And that is such a good one because our patients in that setting cannot speak for themselves sometimes. And so we do push and we do say, you know, and advocate for them. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I think it takes um, someone that can be very democratic, but also very assertive <laughs> to, to make sure that you're saying, okay, well, here's my expertise and here's what I think would be, the patient would be best served with this plan. Take it or leave it. But like, here's what I think is best for the patient. How do you feel confidence, Emily? How do you get confident? confident? Yeah. As a speech path, especially a newer one, how do you come across confident like that? Um, That's a great question. (laughs) I think when I think back onto, um, my fellowship experience, I think one of the the best things that I got out of it, I mean, besides just a ton of experience, um, mm-hmm. was I had a team that was um, very um, supportive. So if you had a patient where you said, here's what I think this needs to be, but I'm not sure I'm communicating that well. So I had supervisors that were like, okay, well, I'm I'm behind you. I'm mama bear. Like I'm, I'm coming in and I'm going <laughs> to back you up. I mean, genuinely. So if they're like, this is a good plan, like you have the right idea, I'm going to come in and I'm going to be your backbone and we're going to go talk to the team together. And so I think it started by just having that great support as a new clinician, where Mm -hmm. if I had really thought through a decision and I said, I don't think this patient needs like a G-tube, for example, I I don't, I think they're going to look different by next week. And I really want the team to just consider like holding off for just a week. I know they need to discharge, but you know, I think this is the right plan. And so I would have those supervisors who did have more experience, you know, years of clinical experience mm-hmm. who would come in and say, okay, uh, this is, I think Emily is on the right track. Like, and, and really kind of echo my message. And I think when you have that in a mentor, you, once you're on your own a little bit more, you, you become your own like advocate too. And so it's so it, important. It goes back to finding that mentor, finding that support, learning, growing, and stepping into being brave in what you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And being confident because I, I think too, um, it's, it's hard sometimes to think about all of the like very specific, maybe niche knowledge that you know, and then zoom out in this entire medical campus. You are the only person with an expertise in that. And sometimes it takes kind of thinking big picture like that to go, okay, I am confident. I know this information. I know more about this information than the average maybe resident or nurse practitioner that's coming in and wants to care for this patient too. How can I add to the conversation? Like, what is that little piece of information that I can add that will help them 
give this patient the best care. That right there is the part that gives me goosebumps about this interview. That is the part that we're going to pull and put in those show notes because that's (laughs) such key wisdom and insight right there and developing the perspective that you have of this is me, this is my skill set, this is what I bring to the team. Mm -hmm. It's so important. And I think the, the longer you work in acute care, the more you get to know that. And then, you know, sometimes you get consults, which you may think are a little bit silly or a little bit like, ah, I'm kind of raising my eyebrows at this. But then, you know, you take that opportunity for education to the teams and it really, it just kind of hits you then like, I'm the one that knows this stuff and I'm the one that's going to help them learn this stuff too. Um, I thought it was so funny the other day. I had a patient where I, I did their swallow study and, and I was talking to the resident. I was like, it wasn't a very good swallow study. <laughs> I never say fail. I never say they didn't fail. They have a lot of weakness. Like X, Y, and Z happen. And he goes, you know, I actually have started watching swallow studies too. I just pulled them up and I really thought it didn't look normal. So thank you for confirming that. Like, uh, this is really cool. I really like watching these. I'm like, yeah, well, you're welcome to. Anytime. If you want more information, you come down to radiology with me. Like, do you want to watch the study and see how it goes? Um, and I just think that's so cool when you get that like cool buy-in from the team and yeah. and they get to see what you do. Or even just the other day, I was I was passing by. Um, I wasn't doing the fees. One of my um, coworkers was doing a fees on a patient that I had seen that morning. I was walking by the room and this attending physician, it was in the CVICU. She walked by and she paused and she she was looking in and she's like kind of wondering what's going on. She goes, oh, it's a swallow study. And she watches it a little more. And she goes, I think it's going pretty well. I don't see anything in his airway. And she just thought it was so cool. And then she kept walking. And I'm like, this is like what, you know, what you have to offer, like showing people what you do. Because I think, you know, most people probably don't entirely understand what you're doing day to day. And they don't know that like level of information that you get from your, from your studies and, and from your work with patients. And so there's a lot of education that can go on. Well said. I can totally geek out on uh, video swallow studies. So if like the PT who's up on the floor with me walks by, look at this, look at this. Uh-huh. Like, oh, <laughs> so they are like learning how to, you know, identify aspiration or aspiration and, and things like that. I just love, love, love that stuff. Yes. Or when the nurses want to know, because, you know, the nurses sometimes will come down to radiology and actually what's fun for me is, uh, so we have a radiologist who stands on the other side of the suite. Um, and some of our radiologists, like the nurses will come in and they don't want to interrupt or anything, but they'll just say, what's, what's happening. And our radiologist will say, come here, come here, look, so here, here's where the pharynx is here, you know, and they'll explain it. And I think that's so cool. And I, I hope that it's helpful for the nurses too, you know, to know what their patients are doing when they're doing a swallow study. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you said that because um, Doc Bechtel is one of the docs I work with in radiology and he's like this, one of the best radiologists I've worked with. So when people know I'm, we're, we're going down for a video swallow study because we're, we're down a floor, um, say, oh, can I come watch? And we tuck him by Dr. Bechtel and oh my gosh, he just like, look at this, look at this, look at this. <laughs> so yeah. if there's anybody who has any spare time and they know that there's a video swallow going on, we tuck him back by Dr. Bechtel. Oh, absolutely. And I love that. And that's, you know, the value of having it a good radiologist too, mm-hmm. <laughs> who is excited about what you're doing and who's um, wants to tell other people too. <laughs> well, and that's where advocacy also comes in because I think when Doc Bechtel and I first started working together, we would, we do a video swallow study. There'd be a, like a large aspirant event and he's like, okay, we're done. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah, no, we're not. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this is what we need to find out. Yes. Because it's not a pass fail. 
And, and Dr. Bechtel's just been wonderfully on board with what I'm asking for. So that is a skill that I'm learning this year because I tell you what, I went when I, during my fellowship, another crazy thing. So we, we never had radiologists present for our inpatient studies. We only had the radiology tech. And so I never had someone over my shoulder going, oh, that aspiration event was too big. And so I really went into these studies like guns ablaze and full rate. Like I, I want to know all the information. And so I came to, to Vanderbilt and, you know, every hospital is different in their setup. And so now we have a radiologist present who sits, uh, you know, on the other side of the wall. And um, sometimes I'll have a resident with them. There's a rad tech too. And so I've really had to just now learn how to navigate this oh, aspiration and walking over and be like, that's okay. Like this man's eating a regular diet at home. So, you know, he might be aspirating, but I mean, better here than, <laughs> than unknown out in the wild, right? Like, let's see what's going on. Let's figure out what he can do. Um, and so it, it really is a skill kind of trying to take the hand of that kind of uneasy radiologist into let's learn more. You know, we're not, we're not just looking for the presence or absence of aspiration. Correct, correct, correct. And that's where that confidence comes in where, cause you're the one out there, um, at least in my hospital, I'm the one giving the trials. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so working together as a team with the tech as well to say, we're working together as a team and this is what I'm looking for. And this is where your skill set comes in. And yeah, it's really a neat thing. Yeah. And it, it, it takes a lot of patience and collaboration. <laughs> I think sometimes to build that relationship from the ground up if it's not there already. Right. What has been um, a neat outcome for you working in this setting that you didn't realize you would have? Um, I think for me, um, working in acute care, one of the I don't know if the outcome, one of, one of the like biggest little joys of working in acute care is seeing patients have that one thing that they've wanted. And so you probably know, like you go in to do a clinical swallow and this person's been intubated 15 days and they go, I just want a, a milkshake. And you're like, okay, okay. Well, that's what we're going to work towards, <laughs> you know, and we're going to get there. And then, so when you have those patients that have been there maybe long enough to get to that point where you get to say, okay, I'm going to bring in this Sprite that you've wanted, or I'm going to bring in this, you know, ice cream or popsicle. That's one of the the best like little joys I think that I get out of working in acute care. Um, and, and then also just having that, um, personally for me, working in a teaching hospital is wonderful because you get to collaborate and you could do as much big picture stuff as you feel like you want to. So, um, for example, right now I'm, um, working with one of our ENTs on a research project with, um, some of his surgical patients doing video swallows with them. And that's been really nice too, which I, it just, you know, it's not an opportunity that you always get. It's not, it's a kind of a luxury that you get, I think, out of teaching hospitals that you can choose to be in these different, um, research studies and, and get to do a little bit more big picture stuff, which I love too. Excellent. Any final words of wisdom, Emily? Um, I like our, our theme of just being confident. <laughs> I think that actually, I wasn't expecting that to come out of this, but um, I think for, for newer clinicians, um, be, you know, rightly so, be confident in your skills and your role in the team um, and, and find someone that's going to have your back as a new clinician who will help you help you express yourself and advocate for patients because at the end of the day, um, mm-hmm. you're not doing something for, to show off your skills. You're doing something to help 
advocate for the patient. And that's, you know, you are helping them um, use their voice too. So um, yeah, just be confident, find a mentor um, and, and know that you, you have this special set of skills that no, not a lot of other team members will have. Well said. I have to, um, off the top of my head, I know that ASHA has a mentor program. Mm -hmm. I think I, there's another one out there. If you go to MedSLP, there's another one. It's, I think too. So one of the things I found is, you know, the um, BCSS Mm -hmm. program. So they, when you start that program, you can start it whenever you don't have to be. For those who don't know what that is, what is that? So there's, there's a program to be, uh, board certified in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And it's, it's kind of a lengthy process, but you can get started even as a CF. And so if you go to, um, you know, the BCS website and such, you can sign up and what they'll do is they have, um, this network of mentors who are already board certified and they will get you in contact with them and, um, you can start the process. So I actually started that process when I was a CF and just talking about, okay, what are the things that will really help? Um, and that's just one other outlet that you can use to, you know, kind of get that mentorship. I sit on the board for Minnesota Speech Hearing Association, and I know we have mentors that come through our program. And so if you reach out to your state organization, um, you can be matched with a local mentor. And Fresh SLP does not offer mentoring. We just, we offer just, we offer just (laughs) community, safe community, because I've seen, um, younger or even students um, ask questions on like med SLP so finding a space where you can ask those questions confidently safely um, in a supportive manner is just so important yes I agree and you know that could even just be like your graduate supervisor you know having that good support is is so invaluable yeah All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Of course. Thank you for um, speaking with me and, and letting me share about my, my job.